This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... System Humility. Famous Rasputins of History. Drunk PCs. And the Poirier Scheme. It has come to pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world. The new edition has a completely new character creation system. Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world. And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong. Unknown Army's third edition has three core books. Play for Players, Run for GMs, and Reveal the Book of the Weird for Everyone. Buy them individually, or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Because Unknown Armies is there, right now. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the shag-carpeted confines of the Gaming Hut. And here in the Gaming Hut, games are underway, and within those games are subsystems. And some subsystems, it has been said, are so magnificent, so beautiful, so powerful that they stop the game dead while you admire them and or look things up. We are here to talk about the other kinds of subsystems, systems that perhaps exhibit system humility. And who better to discuss systemic humility than the Gaming Hut's <laughs> very own Canadian, Robin Delaws? Robin? Right. So uh, I've come up with this term, system humility, and how do I inject this term into the bloodstream of uh, gaming? Well, hey, I have a podcast. So <laughs> By saying it really loud. <laughs> by saying it uh, loud and, and often. And uh, I don't know if it's going to come up often enough to be a thing I always say, but I think it is an interesting concept and one that I don't think gets a lot of uh, attention from game designers in particular. I first started thinking about this in terms of the reaction to the procedural system in Hillfolk. Uh, the underlying rules engine for uh, that game is called Drama System. And as you might guess from that name, the main focus of the game experience is dramatic interaction. However, there comes a time, even in a dramatic story, when occasionally the characters must actually do something. Yeah, they have to do something. And, and the question of whether they succeed or fail uh, should have some suspense attaching to it. And uh, the, the players want to play out whether it succeeds or fails. And so that's where the procedural system comes in. And I deliberately, when designing it in the first place, designed it to not be as inherently alluring, as fun to touch and feel and move around its parts as the dramatic system. Now, some people have received this game and go, hey, this part of the game is not as much fun to touch and feel and move around its parts. And 
guess what? Uh, I did that on purpose. Yeah. And the reason for that is that I actually want players to stop and think, do we really want to use the procedural system for this? Or do we want to take the other option, which is presented in the rules, which allows us to just say we succeeded or say that we failed? And as long as everybody at the table agrees that that's okay to either have succeeded or, or failed, you just narrate that and move on. And the, the reason for that is I want most of every session to be devoted to dramatic interplay and also the fact that some players will try to duck out of that of coming up with dramatic conflicts by saying okay well let's have a chase now well that's a gratuitous chase so part of the uh, disincentive to do that is that the uh, procedural rules do their job they adjudicate the outcome but they're not in and of themselves something that you want to dig in and have fun with and i think a lot of game designers or some game designers have responded to that by going well shouldn't this be more elaborate shouldn't this be more like uh powered by the apocalypse and my answer is no it should not because powered by the apocalypse is a fun thing that people like to dig into and root around in and have fun moving all the levers and dials and they would use it more if it was a whole group who wanted that um there's also a caveat though which is people who have later responded to the procedural rules and, and don't love them want them to be more complicated, whereas during playtest, the playtesters wanted them to be less complicated because they wanted the focus to be on dramatic interaction. And in this case, they were right. So, Ken, have you uh, run across a subsystem that you feel is either exemplary of system humility or should have been humbler? <laughs> I can think of many systems that should have been so humble as to be absolutely retiring, Robin. But that <laughs> seems unkind. I, I think that we sort of need to begin by making a distinction between system humility, where it's a system that does its job, but doesn't call attention to itself, doesn't present an attractive surface, necessarily, and systems that are so... Uh, snarled up or even not even snarled up, but just challenging seeming that people are like, Oh, if we run this game, uh, with the mass combat rules, it is going to take forever and we're going to be doing that all day. Let's just agree that the orcs defeated the Vikings and move on. And so it's sort of like that, but it's not that the mass combat system is, it might not even be fun, but it's, it's, it's a whole different thing and it draws so much attention to itself. So I guess we have humble systems and maybe porcupine systems where if you're going to engage with them, you're going to be engaging with them a lot and it's going right. to leave barbs in your flesh. So systems that actually do their job, get out of the way and move on. I think that systems like that are, you know, in, in many uh, good games, that's what most systems are that the goal is playing the game, playing the character, moving the story forward, getting into your, your, uh, your character's experiences, and that none of the game engine should necessarily have a big flangey surface that's fun to mess around with on a purely gamist style. And so a lot of, uh, for example, Call of Cthulhu is all system humility, even going crazy, uh, which is sort of the core activity of it or half the core activity is very simple. There's not a lot of planes and surfaces to touch. You can't move it around a lot. It's a matter you roll your dice. Did you comprehend what you saw? Too bad. And then there's the little uh, stair step of how badly you have been hosed by this uh, experience. But it's not 
a system that people are like, oh, good, let's fiddle with the insanity a lot. They're like, okay, we do this. It happens. It's core to experiential play. So it's not quite the same thing as you're talking about a procedural system, but it just slides out of the way and lets the game move forward. And that I think is the, is true of a lot of Call of Cthulhu. And it's one of the reasons that people among the me enjoy Call of Cthulhu so very, very much is because Almost all the systems, I think with the exception of auto fire, there isn't a system in Call of Cthulhu that anyone has to think about for more than a second. And so they're all humble systems. So do you, do you believe that system humility is a thing only for subsystems? Or do you believe that system humility can be a characteristic of an entire game engine a la Call of Cthulhu? I, I think there's, there's two separate things. There is complexity versus simplicity. And there is how much a rule or system is aesthetically pleasing. So, for example, you can take the Call of Cthulhu engine uh, and look at another iteration of it, uh, for example, RuneQuest, which decides that certain things should not be humble and should attract attention and are meant to be fun because they attract attention. Right. Uh, most specifically, hit locations. So, in RuneQuest, once you get hit, you then determine whether you got hit in the abdomen or the arm or where it was. And it even comes down to the point where, you know, you're, you have different uh, levels of armor for different parts of your body. So yeah. it's like, oh, well, thank goodness I robbed the baboon of that leg grave back there because my, I now have a better leg grave and I got hit in the leg. <laughs> All it means and is so, that my, my leg has to bend backwards, but that's a small price to pay. <laughs> right. Um, well, th- th- these are anthropomorphic baboons. Oh, right, right, they're, yeah. they're configured differently. Yeah, it's not just a, a regular animal ba- baboon who just for some reason is carrying a leg grave. This is, it's not for some reason. He's carrying it to hit you with. Baboons well, are horrible. <laughs> well, this particular... We're, we're digressing. No, that's because you've made that system so attractive. Exactly. There's too much um, stuff to do. So, the baboon discussion subsystem, not humble. Right. So the hit locations is not meant to be a, a humble system. That is meant... You're supposed to enjoy the uh, experience of, of checking to see where you got hit and where the armor is. And that's not uh, considered by RuneQuest fans to be a big unwieldy new thing that they have to deal with. That's part of the fun. So it's, uh, it's an example of something that is utile, that is slightly more complicated, uh, and that is meant to call attention to itself. Whereas, you know, if you have a game, for example, where very occasionally you might have to determine whether you go insane or not, the first thing you do as a designer is, can I make this part of the system instead of a subsystem? And so, you know, it, making that a role in uh, against a percentile dice in a basic role-playing system, it's, you know, you're not a subsystem, you're just sort of folding it in. But if there's another level of thing that you have to deal with or you want to have something that is more modular, I guess another example would be the distinction between investigative and general abilities in Gumshoe, where I didn't design the general abilities to be humble per se, but they certainly are humbler uh, than having an, a more complicated resolution system that is separate from the investigative system. And uh, again, that they're meant to throw focus onto the fact that investigative abilities are very different than general abilities. And that's one of the reasons that I put cherries into Knights Black Agents is to draw more attention to the general activities because the general abilities are more are at least as core for your Jason Bourne uh, super spies as the investigative abilities of finding out about vampires are. So that's where you take a, a, a humbler 
a part of the system or subsystem, depending on how you consider general abilities to be, and shine them up, but necess- but without ideally adding too much complexity, or at least putting the complexity up in character generation and not necessarily into play. Right. And, and that's a great example of how the if the play experience shifts, uh, you need to dial up or dial down the uh, importance that you place on a particular ability so that, uh, as you just said, uh, the humble general abilities have to jump up and grab more center stage. So you, ad- you added some flanges to them so that the process of interacting uh, with a general ability in Knights Black Agents is more called out to the player and they have the fun of interacting uh, with a, a rule or not. Uh, another thing is that the uh, wounds and uh, injuries in the upcoming Yellow King role-playing game, just as in Gumshoe One-to-One, are now becoming more interactive and more something the players are explicitly dealing with on an interactive level because they now get cards that describe particular effects of their um, mental or uh, physical injuries. And so uh, that is bringing something more into the forefront in order to uh, make that more part of distinctively that experience, whereas the new fighting rules are uh, faster. There's just one gestalt role that you make. And so that is uh, saying that fighting in this particular iteration of Gumshoe, I'm going to make this uh, humbler, but it's then going to have an outcome that you interact with more. Fighting is humbler. Injury is more interesting. Welcome to the welcome to the Carcosa mythos. Exactly. The consequence <laughs> of the fight gets more attention than the fight itself, uh, which, again, is not something that you want to say is something that happens in every version of Gumshoe. And I would expect fighting to continue to be a spotlight experience in Knights Black Agents, for example. Right. So I guess the difference is not humble versus boastful, but humble versus spotlight. Yeah, another uh, humble subsystem uh, and I'm and I brought up mass combat earlier as an example of a subsystem that is often not humble. But the mass combat in Savage Worlds I think maybe may fit your criterion because when you go into a Savage Worlds fight, one of the things that it because it came out of miniatures gaming, uh one of the things that it does pretty well is if you've got a bunch of guys that you've been leading into the jungle to to find an idol or something and you run into uh angry kobolds who want to keep the idol, you can have your followers fight the kobolds as part of the gameplay. It doesn't suddenly become, well, all the first level people back up and then the nine champions get in the middle and fight it out with axes and then everyone joins in. No, it has a more organic feel where your your band of followers and their band of followers can have a fight and you're suddenly in a battle that feels like a battle. But because the way that the mass combat system works in Savage Worlds, it's really... It, it's it's relatively abstract, certainly for a mass combat system. It's very abstract. It feels like part of the fight, but a sort of separate part of the fight. And you're still encouraged to focus your attention on what your character is doing, not on suddenly turning this into a war game where you micromanage every single little unit. And it's the sort of thing where, of course, because gamers are gamers and many of us are war gamers, you look at something like the mass combat system in Savage Worlds, and I'm sure that Shane has done it. You look at the mass combat system and you say, oh man, I could, if I did this and I could make some uh, modifiers for morale or for state of the battlefield and I could add artillery and suddenly you've turned it into a, a war game, which may or may not be fun, but it is not the activity of a role-playing game. And Shane, being a really good designer, as well as a uh, a, a long-time wargamer, I think, uh, recognized that when he 
sort of created that uh, mass combat system for Savage Worlds. So that would be an example of a of I think a to the original definition humble right, subsystem. Because it, to, it, as a designer, to test if your system is humble, you have failed to be humble if a it radically breaks the mindset and you feel like you're playing a different game. But it also has failed to be humble if it is so much fun unto itself that it gets people, <laughs> oh, well, let's start another war. Okay, that war was great. Let's go over and have a, a war with the elves. Well, if that is not the original idea of what that experience is supposed to be, uh, you know, if you don't want a role-playing game that is, in fact, a wrapper on a series of war games, the very funness of that subsystem has caused it to grab spotlight when that was not your intention as a designer. So there's a, a number of false roads that you can go down. You can go down the road of complexity of how can I possibly make sure that this accounts for uh, everything that uh, any player is going to ask to be able to do, or how can I make this super fun and elegant unto itself? And both of those things are, are different ideas. And if you find yourself developing something that is super fun and elegant unto itself, maybe you should break that out and make that into the core system of a game that's actually about that. Well, I think that, you know, you can or you can't. I don't think that humility in a subsystem is necessarily the thing to aim for in all cases, because I look at Aces and Eights, which is another Western role-playing game, which has a number of really great subsystems for cattle drives or, all, you know, all manner of other little things that can happen in the course of a Western, and none of them are the core activity of gunning down owl hoots, but they're all fun subsystems, and the goal is to provide you literally a thing to do instead of play the regular game. If you're like, we're, uh, we've, all of our adventures have felt a little samey samey, let's do a cattle drive. And then you're in a fun cattle drive subsystem that in theory could be its own cattle driving book, God forbid, but is actually really fun and really attractive to play. So it's, it's not a humble subsystem. It's definitely a subsystem. It's not cattle drive the role playing game, but. I guess the difference there and maybe where you might claim it for humility is that because it is constrained, I think just in terms of word count, it can't be as full and responsive an experience as straight up role playing is. And so you're in a more constrained story and activity set that maybe creates a humility of play, even if the rules themselves are great I, I fun. I might carve out a, a separate little category for that, which is the guest star subsystem. Right, yeah. I think I, I feel sure that we have talked about guest starring subsystems on this Perhaps very podcast. Perhaps in relation to in this fact. particular example. Yeah. But the, the idea being that normally this is not a game about cattle drives, but for tonight only, this is a game about cattle drives. So it's sort of like, exactly. you know, uh, yeah. just like your substitute teacher coming in. This is your substitute core activity for this particular. <laughs> so, so everyone gives their wrong name yeah, and screws the, around. The subsystem writes his name on the board. And well, uh -huh. I, I think now that we're uh, belaboring a metaphor, uh, one of the rules of this uh, podcast is whenever you belabor a metaphor, it's time uh, to head on in uh, past this thicket of forest of vegetation and then on through commercial into a next segment. Hey, 
kids? Want to plunge headlong into Lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group? Want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role-playing hobby? Gumshoe One to One has come to your rescue. Find this new system by some guy named Robin D. Laws. In the first Gumshoe One to One book, Cthulhu Confidential, combine the darkness of 30s hard-boiled detective fiction with the cosmic horror of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos. Complete with three dauntless investigators, each ready to play in seconds. Scholarly veteran Langston Wright by Chris Spivey. Crusading journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman. And Robin's hard-boiled private eye Dex Raymond. Presenting three terrifying settings. Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town and Egypt inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something more than night. Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be seen. The Fathomless Sleep, a spiral into memory unspeakable. Also with... Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one-to-one play. Full support for creating your own one-to-one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified has never been so much fun. The sepia tone photographs and the lack of central heating tell us we've once more entered the old-timey confines of the history hut. And this time around, we have a topic uh, granted to us by backer Andrea Coletta, which I think is going to challenge the 15-minuteness of our uh, segment concept. And it goes like this. Uh, Our task here is to look not just at the Rasputin story, but at other Rasputin-like stories. And there's a a contemporary example coming up we've been asked to deal with. But uh, Ken, assuming uh, that you are writing the uh, reference book, which is the Historical Dictionary of Rasputins and Rasputin-like Figures. Uh, when you come to the entry on Rasputin, uh, what is your brief encapsulation of this uh, incredibly rich and detailed story? All right. In the Encyclopedia of Rasputin, the entry on Rasputin reads, Grigory Efemovich Rasputin, 1869-1916, Russian mystic, influential at the court of Nicholas II, the the Tsar Nicholas II, because of his uh, reputation for mystic communion with God and his apparent ability to ease the hemophiliac symptoms of the Tsarevich Alexei and provided a, a, a great amount of advice to the Tsar and was the convenient blame figure for people who thought the Tsar was making dumb decisions. And since we all know how the Romanovs turned out... <laughs> Someone was making dumb decisions, and whether it was Nicholas or Rasputin may never be known. But he was, for example, uh, in favor of the dumb decision to not get into World War One. So that that may or may not have been um, one of his dumb decisions. That may have been one of those things where uh, angels or devils or uh, meteor aliens appeared to him and said, "Don't get into World War One. That's a terrible <laughs> idea." Um, he was also a libertine uh, of uh, filthy physical uh, grooming and appearance, but he enjoyed the ladies, and apparently the ladies likewise enjoyed Rasputin. The question being, 
to what extent he was enjoyed for his own sexual magnetism, what extent he was enjoyed as a diversion from uh, thin-blooded Russian aristocrats, and to what extent he was enjoyed as a means of getting your opinion to the czar. If it's like, oh, I really need to tell the czar about my new plan for spelt, um, I should uh, have my sister sleep with Rasputin and tell him about spelt, and that'll sort of shift it up. So he assembled a great deal of, of power and influence, and eventually people were sick of unshaven weirdo monks sleeping with their sisters for power and influence, uh, murdered him over and over and over again, in legend at least, on the uh, last day of 1916, and he wound up um, uh, drowned in a river. Right, and he was murdered by uh, royalists. Yes, who, by uh, royalty, in fact. The, yes. <laughs> by Grand Dukes. They were not opposed to the Tsar. <laughs> they wanted the Tsar to be receiving, uh, if not better advice, their advice. Their advice, uh, yes. Rather than Rasputin's. So we have a, a much more recent example of a spiritual leader uh, gaining uh, political influence through their uh, spiritual advising capacities over a political figure, and that's in South Korea, where President Park Gum-hai was influenced by uh, Choi Soon-sil, who's the daughter uh, of a, a shamanic cult leader, and I guess also a, a shamanic evangelical herself, uh, the uh, leader of the movement, her mom, is Choi Tae-min. So, uh, so Ken, uh, if you're going to write the entry in the Encyclopedia of Rasputin's that concerns uh, President Park Gum-hai of uh, South Korea and the uh, Rasputin Choi Soon-sil, what does that say? Okay, uh, Choi Soon-sil is the daughter of a previous Rasputin named Choi Tai-min. And Choi Tai-min actually overlaps our Rasputin, born in 1912, died in the 90s. He was a former Buddhist. He was a shamanic Catholic, I guess, uh, converted to Catholicism, uh, which is not the majority Christian denomination in Korea. That's Presbyterianism, believe it or not. And throughout the course of it, developed, I guess, heterodox beliefs about um, astrology and Choi Taimin's personal role as the interpreter of stars and spirits. Uh, he, he is often referred to as a sorcerer in Korean news. And so who's to say may or may not have been a sorcerer? I don't have Cult that information. Sorcerer. Loaded. These are all loaded terms. At, at, at hand. But uh, was very influential in the cabinet of Park Chung-hee and over his daughter, Park Gyun-hee, who also became president of Korea. His cult, by the way, is called the Church of Eternal Life, Yang Sai Gyo, which sounds kind of culty. Uh, maybe not. Depends on whose eternal life you're talking about or if you're putting it up in heaven where it belongs. Right. Not here and on Earth. And if this is the second most famous cult movement to come out of Korea. Like zombies and robots. And he declared himself a Maitreya, which is a messianic figure in Buddhism, which is the kind of thing that you get really a lot of attention to when Buddhist and Christian religious elements overlap, people start saying, well, how can I reconcile these two things that I think are both cool? Oh, look, Buddhism has sort of a messiah. Let's make a big deal out of the Maitreya. And so Maitreya-focused beliefs are sort of an attempt to syncretize those two religions. But when you declare yourself the Maitreya, I think you may have tiptoed over the line, certainly from a Christian perspective, possibly, I'm not the expert, from a Buddhist perspective. Right. 
But it doesn't doesn't scare the the horses quite as much as saying Messiah. No, not a not. A, it, it may scare them more, but if they're Buddhist horses, they're like, eh, it's just an illusion, just a thing of Maya. I'll be reincarnated <laughs> as something else. It's going to be cool. Anyway, so Choi Tai Min dies in ninety uh, four. Uh, Choi Tai Min's uh, daughter Choi Soon Sil continues his good work, I guess, and becomes a hugely influential player at the uh, at the court, I guess you'd get, say, or in the administration of uh, Park Yun-hee, such that Samsung, amongst other enormous Korean chaiboles, began to funnel millions and millions, perhaps even billions of dollars, through Choi Soon-sil's cult, and through Choi Soon-sil's businesses, and through Choi Soon-sil's daughter, who was studying dressage in Austria, and what one would have thought was completely unattached to all of this. But Samsung knows that one of the good ways to bribe a mom is to bribe their daughter, and apparently uh, that works. I knew it was relevant to bring horses into It this. was relevant to bring horses. You thought I was just talking nonsense. Ha <laughs> ha! I'm never just talking nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, the allegations are that her role went beyond providing sort of bland spiritual advice and sucking up bribes to actively interfering in government policymaking. And that was one of the indictments against Park Jun-hee, who was, I guess, forced to resign and impeached by the Korean parliament uh, whenever and uh, a couple of years ago, early this year, last year, sometime. And that is the brief story, although I'm sure there are many more shoes to drop because just like with Watergate, we, you find out all manner of exciting things or the CIA's church committee, you start finding out all manner of exciting things well after the scandal has blown up when everyone feels like they need to rush in and get their memoirs into print. Since their memoirs are in print in Korean, I assume it'll take a while before we start finding out the weird, salacious, crazy pants angles of what's already kind of a weird, salacious, crazy pants story. And I think you have a, a third uh, item for the reference book. <laughs> yes, it's not a two-person reference book, because that would be ridiculous. Uh, in between those, we have the entry for Baroness Crudaner, who was a religious mystic and uh, channeler, I think, amongst other things. But she is the person who cozied up to Tsar Alexander I. Something about Tsar's uh, responds well to this and convinced him to create the Holy Alliance. And uh, she was part of a, a wave of pietism that was uh, right in the completely natural aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars. People were like, let's get as far away from that as we possibly can and began to move into um, uh, religious uh, pursuits instead. And no one will ever take advantage of a sweep toward piety. No. <laughs> that will happen. never be abused. <laughs> well, as long as there's no democracy, there's a limit to how much you can take advantage of it. But Baroness Crudaner found a way, which was to convince Tsar Alexander to create an alliance of Christendom to stamp out any such thing as atheistic revolution wherever it raised its ugly head. And also, if you wouldn't mind funding her friends in the Crimea, that would super help. In history, sadly, that is the part at which Tsar Alexander said, well, I like your completely impractical idea for international relations, but I'm not funding anyone's relatives in the Crimea. And that was the end of that. But it was a beautiful moment as long as it lasted. Well, if you're going to predict trouble in Crimea, you're probably going to be right eventually. <laughs> it, it is true. That is the uh, Rasputin-y equivalent of you will take a, a long trip or meet a, a mysterious stranger. So are there other major Rasputins of history, or is this just a, a reference book with two entries? <laughs> it's a reference book with two entries, just the two. Um, no, because you can, for example, start saying, where is your line between your Rasputins and your Richelieu's? I mean, Richelieu is 
similarly religious figure, draws uh, great influence, has uh, hypnotic uh, gray eminence power over the um, uh, over the throne of France. But on the other hand, he's a genuine cardinal. He has an administrative role. He's a cool guy. And as far as we know, not a sexual degenerate or weird uh, theological figure. Just Orthodox Roman Catholicism, uh, except for the part where you help out the Holy Roman Emperor. That's not part of Richelieu's agenda. So your your line between Rasputins and Grey Eminences, I guess, has to go with, are they magic? Are they crazy? And uh, if they're one or the other, then they get to be Rasputins. And if they're neither, then they're just Richelieu's. Right, because both Rasputin and the Choi's are working within a milieu where there is a broader belief in mysticism, and they're not wholly seen as uh, completely crazy and outside the bounds of things, right? That, that Rasputin takes place during a big uh, occult spiritual revival in Russia. They sort of have their own kind of burned-over district going on at that time. Uh, but they're also not universally regarded as the one church authority the way that uh, Richelieu would be. And of course, during uh, antiquity, you wouldn't be a leader at all if you didn't have some oracle tearing apart uh, calves and looking at their entrails. But right. um, unless they achieved a degree of influence that rattled the rest of the elite, that the rest of the elite said, well, I don't, I don't know about this. This guy's, his lamb entrails are pretty slanted against us. We don't like that. The, the, uh, there's sort of a legitimacy question where the uh, leader may be uh, quite devoted to the uh, guru figure, but uh, others around them are not necessarily. And I guess this is what brings us into uh, fictionalizing or gamifying this dynamic in that uh, you can have a court intrigue where there is a spiritual figure who is more admired by the monarch than by other members of the court. And then it's up to you to uh, decide uh, because, of course, in a fantastical world, it might well be that they are uh, getting the true dope from beyond on whether they should enter this uh, war uh, that they know to be disastrous, but that all of the uh, elites want to go off and get into because they figure that's their way to uh, rise and gain glory. And so the obvious way to do this is that the guru is a crackpot and that you, the player characters, are trying to expose them. Or that they are in league with demons or other badnesses and you're trying to expose them for that. They may not be a crackpot. They may be a genuine sorcerer or communer with the outside, but the outside that they're communing with is the bad news outside that you, the player characters, are opposed to. Right. And those are the two uh, obvious ways to go about that. But the thing that sort of turns the trope on its head is they are receiving... Uh, the uh, the great advice from the angels, and it's the uh, foolish humans around them who are going to go off and get into a war, and you have to, you decide that, oh, wait a minute, this guru that everybody hates, uh, possibly because of their, you know, personal peccadilloes, maybe there's a reason <laughs> why people don't, uh, you know, the whole uh, angels tell you to wife swap thing, uh, but other than that, the advice is pretty good. You know, this it's just one angel has this weird personal advice, but all the rest of them are all about <laughs> don't get into this war with the with the elves. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, you 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 hear from a bunch of angels, you take all their input on board, and so you put forth a broad policy position of not getting into war, lightening the taxes on the common people, and give me all your sisters. And that's basically straightforward, right? Um, straightforward from here. 
Yeah, the I think one of the things that you can do also in terms of gaming to make it interesting is you make the guru someone who the player characters know from their own sources, magical or otherwise, is getting the straight scope from the angels, from the good side. But they are also working against the players because they're like, oh, they also have a connection to the angels. And so one of the things that I'm going to say is the angels say those guys are working for demons. So even if the angels are saying no such thing, that uh, Rasputin is working against them for their own political position, not even necessarily because of their peccadilloes, but it's a thing of, look, you know, I'm the sole support of my extended uh, impoverished family back in Tomsk. I need this court money. You can't be going in here and giving good advice for free. Or maybe the Rasputin is like, come on, we're all talking to the angels. We're all on the same side. Join my cult. I'll make you regional uh, vice presidents. And you can go out and uh, have all kinds of sisters of people in other courts and we'll turn it into a big thing and we'll prevent World War One. How about that? And with your magic power and my magic power, we can do this arbitrary thing that you, the player characters, really, really want to do. I find that having uh, powerful NPCs attempt to recruit the players is a really good and underused um, uh, engine of gaming choices. And uh, the Dying Earth version of this, of course, is that you become the crackpot guru and yes. <laughs> try to wheedle your way into the court and have every there are other player characters uh, playing defense for you. Uh, the obvious way to do that is the potentate is uh, auditioning new spiritual leaders after the previous one was uh, regrettably incinerated during a ritual. And, <laughs> or thrown uh, into a river by a number of uh, anonymous Grand Dukes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so uh, you then have the opportunity to prove your great holiness and, of course, in uh, something where uh, you can act underhandedly and the uh, metaphysical alignment system isn't going to weigh in and make it obvious who's good and evil, uh, you can then be the uh, the guru and just see how long you can extract resources from the court and how much of them you can cart away before the inevitable moment comes when the archdukes come to throw you in the river. Um, and we're getting to the point where we're throwing you in the river. It's time to move through a commercial to our next segment. Western is coming! Yeehaw! Yeehaw indeed, Owlhoot. Strap on your boots, your holster, and your Stetson for a game full of the Old West feel. Play ruthless desperados. Merciless bounty hunters. Courageous native warriors. Corrupt Indian agents. And fire and brimstone preachers. Ranch wars flare. Rumors of gold summon thousands of adventurers. Peaceful towns live in fear of outlaw gangs and justice is executed by the fastest gun. This award-winning Swedish game comes in two core books, one for character creation play, the other a giant toolbox for game masters. You can also find five ready-to-play scenarios and various tools for the GM in its Kickstarter, Kickstarting Now! Ride the range to a time and place in need of heroes! Kickstart Western, the role-playing game! This episode is also brought to you by Patreon backers, exactly like... Ash Jackson is the Scroll Bard! Simon Proctor! Jenks! Even Lindsay! Plus Paul and Cleo Bushland! 
it's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer Wayne asks Ken and Robin, given how often Ken's time machine involves Ken drinking someone under a table, how do you handle PC and NPC intoxication in RPGs? Robin, is this a uh, role for system humility? Is this a role for an exciting drinking subsystem? Perhaps a LARP? I would think most of the time you want to do this uh, humbly. I can't envision a game in which uh, uh, the drunkenness rules are anything other than a, uh, a resistance role to see if you then uh, get a uh, negative modifier on what you're uh, doing. I don't know. What, what possible game could we think of where uh, drinking is an extended thing that you keep resolving through a, a long-running mechanic? I just can't come up with anything. Um, the main thing that I uh, try to keep in mind when it comes up in a game is that you don't want to punish the players for taking a fun risk that illuminates their characters. Because having characters who, uh, who drink to excess uh, in, a, in fiction uh, tells us, uh, depending on the, the lightness or darkness of the narrative, that either they're uh, fun-loving uh, figures of uh, bacchanalian anarchy or that they're on a grim downward spiral. And uh, either way, that's a, a, a fun thing to say or a, a dramatically compelling thing to say about your character. And, you know, the original sort of uh, D&D way of handling that would be, oh, well, you made a mistake by taking a drink. Here's a here's a negative modifier. And next time you if you run into a wandering monster anytime soon, that's going to cause problems for you. You don't want to uh, make that only a thing that they were dumb to add something to their character for. Uh, but you want to allow that to be something that there's some sort of suspense around as to whether, uh, you know, getting uh, wrecked while uh, on watch is going to bring a disaster uh, on you and, and the rest of the party. And you also want to avoid that thing where the uh, rest of the uh, players suffer for a character decision uh, that you've made. How do you handle uh, imbibing PCs in a, in a game? I think that uh, one of the things that you can do is you provide not just a punishment, but a bribe. So if you're drinking, maybe that's a plus two to your charisma role to find out from people because you're a happy, good looking drunk and everyone loves a happy drunk. And so, or they tell their plan because they're like, oh, he's drunk. He's not paying any attention or whatever. So you, you add to your charisma role, you add to your overhear role, you add to your, um, uh, gossip collection, whatever it happens to be. And you, add, you get a couple points of sanity back because you're releasing your tension. And that depends on you being drunk. And yeah. You'll still be, you'll still be drunk in case there's a fight. If you're, if you go out in the alley and people dry gulch you, you'll be at minuses to dex, but you are at pluses to gather that cool information. So it's a trade off, just like actual drinking. You mentioned getting sanity back. That's a standard thing. If you have an addiction as a character defect, then feeding that addiction gives you sanity back, gives you stability back, makes you feel in control. So that's why you're drinking on watch is because you know that you're going to be attacked by Biaki. And so you need to drink so that your sanity is, is up as high as it's going to go so that the Biaki, when they show up, won't unman you completely. Yeah. If, you're, if your first response to Biaki is, I love you, man, you know, it's less, it's less harmful in the long run. And, and actually, then the Biaki have to make a stability check. Yeah. That's what happens. Um, but the, but then you are at a minuses. Maybe you drank to excess and you fell asleep on, on watch. And that's just part of it. And I'm not sure that it hoses the other players to have a character engaging in risky behavior because it's no different from the thief saying, I'll go ahead and see if that, if this, uh, corridor is mined. It's like, well, if he triggers the mines, we're all going to get caught in the shrapnel, but we need to send someone ahead. And it's just part and parcel of 
the whole risk reward endeavor of, of gameplay to me. And so you'd say, well, we, someone has to watch. Everyone's got to get some sleep. So drunky McDrunkerson's got to go up there, even though we know it's going to happen. And that's just something that you're playing through as part of what's making the story better. Because if the only story components that you allow in are the ones that don't hose the players, well, your story, first of all, is pretty one dimensional. And second of all, it's short <laughs> because they're like, right. look at us unhosed. We've defeated all the Biaki and stolen the magic horses and everyone's super happy. We got an emerald. Man, what a great game. Man, there's a lot of time left tonight. Um, so yeah, I would say that, you know, you, you need to present it just as in the real world. It's a trade off. And it may be between feeling good or it may be between getting uh, uh, co- someone's confidence or it may be a straight up Indiana Jones uh, style drinking battle between Marion and the giant yak herding guy. And it's a straight up con versus con contest role or, you know, modified maybe by any advantages you might have. So if you've taken, oh, I'm a convivial, happy drunk, you're like, oh, but I can beat this guy in a drinking contest because my liver has the strength of 10. And so even though your con is low, you're like, yeah, go ahead, add your alcoholism bonus to this because you should be able to outdrink this yak herder who's got nothing but con going for him. Yeah, I think it's something that you might want to do but sparingly, right? So the first time... Well, again, the- I mean, if the, if the game is about you're all Dionys- Dionysian cultists in um, uh, 7th century Greece, yeah, you may be spending a lot more time drunk, but, you know... Or that that's unlikely. But, but but the archetypal situation where, you know, your F-20 characters, you've got the standard Night Watch against the wandering monsters, and the uh, dwarf gets drunk and uh, is surprised when the wandering monster shows up. Therefore, everybody is surprised. That uh, is going to be way less entertaining the second time you do it. Because the first <laughs> time you can have the fun thing where they, you know, stage the intervention afterwards and they're... It, uh, you know, increases tensions within the group. But, and especially if you have players who tend to look at their, uh, characters more as playing pieces and are very, uh, cautious, that's something you want to break them out of. But you want to make sure that that, that they're not being broken out of it by the one player whose goal is just to subvert what they're doing. And, uh, and so you want to just keep an eye on, uh, making sure that, uh, everybody thinks that's a, a fun story complication and not uh, them, uh, you know, being sidetracked in a way that they're uh, unhappy as, as players, as well as characters. Now, I guess we're also supposed to uh, talk about uh, the effects of alcohol on uh, game master characters. And that's basically, you know, you've heard Ken's time machine. That's the uh, basic thing where you probably need a, uh, a charisma role to, have the character who you're targeting want to drink with you, and then a uh, constitution rule or the equivalent, of course, of those two things in whatever system you're dealing with in order to see just how far under the table you are able to uh, drink them. And I guess if you're really tactical about it, you will drink them under the table and then the rest of the sober uh, player uh, characters will then take whatever advantage they're going to take over the uh, NPC's intoxicated state. Yeah, if you're looking at tactically or strategically getting NPCs drunk, a lot of it just, it's like any other combat, you know, you're saying, well, this guy's got a lot of hit points, we should send the the, the DPS guy after him. Uh, this guy deals a lot of hit points, we should send the tank after him. This guy's, you know, uh, gonna go over easily. We don't need to send in the, the super liver. This guy's a, a, a yak herder, we need to send super liver after to, to stop him. So it's about deploying your guy and 
part of the fun, I think, of role-playing is to be able to say, hold on, we don't need to fight our way through here if we can get the guards drunk. And that should be a legitimate choice. I mean, again, just in straight-up history, guards get drunk all the time, and in circumstances where, you know, it's about as bad as missing the Biaki attack, you know, missing the Viking attack is pretty much the same thing uh, by the end of the day. I love you, Vikings! I love you, Vikings! Odin rules! Um, and so the... Uh, uh, and so the, you know, getting the guards drunk should be a legitimate plan and part of your energy. And maybe that's, that's how the bard pays his freight as he goes in and he's like, Hey, everybody, just a wandering minstrel. Got some <laughs> delicious cider, really thirst refreshing, quenching on a night of watch. Let me sing a song about a bold watchman. And then, you know, they, uh, everyone drinks to that and then they all pass out because either you dose the cider with something the bard is immune to or the bard just happens to be the guy with the super lover. And then you move through or you're, or they're drunk. And then when the archers attack, they're like, oh, what the hell? And you're and they're at the minuses and only your bard is at minuses because only he's been, you know, plowed. And maybe those minuses don't even apply to his bardic abilities because you can sing when you're drunk. Everyone knows that. So that's, you know, that, that's a tactical choice and it should be part of a tactical choice in a game with realistic humanoids in it. And, and that should be true of Call of Cthulhu. It should be true of uh, F20 games. It should be true of, you know. Anything, it should certainly be true of the Yellow King, right? I mean, people are pounding absinthe all the time in that milieu. There is, there's a lot of absinthe drinking in the first uh, segment of our version of the game, that's for sure. And uh, one of the players in the second part, the one that's set in a, the 1947 Continental War, uh, has decided as part of his character that uh, he's going to drink uh, heavily in response to all of these crazy events that are uh, mixing his brain up. So uh, that's a really interesting contrast between the sort of uh, more uh, fun Bacchanalia part one is now reflected in a more uh, a grimmer or realistic portrait of, of that. And so I want to make sure as GM that I never do anything to uh, penalize that player for making that choice that adds that interesting uh, color to the game. But you can't also... Uh, create the idea that there's no consequences to it. So there is still a role to see how badly affected they are. And then that gives you the chance of a win if you pass the role. Mm -hmm. And if you uh, fail the role, well, of course, that's that's all fair in love and uh, alcoholism. And you can certainly build a fairly, I don't know uh, if it, it you could you could build a humble subsystem of drinking, whereby every time you drink, it's a gamble. You know, do I get the plus two charisma bonus? Do I get the minus two dex minus? What happens as a result of drinking? And that might be uh, varied by, you know, what you're drinking. Are you more of a hard liquor guy? Are you more of a wine guy? Are you more of a beer guy? Uh, does the beer of the elves have different power than the wine of the dwarves or vice versa? Any number of, of different sorts of choices go into it. And you can make drinking as big a part of the game as you could psionics or uh, in some senses magic. And in many senses, magic is all about drinking because it's going to be about communing with these exterior powers and you have to be broken out of the regular world in order to do it. I could absolutely believe in a magic system where if you're not drunk, you take penalties to cast spells because the outer powers are like, you're still paying attention to the material world. You're not taking us seriously enough. Yeah. So altered states are, are uh, you know, central to uh, so many versions of, of mysticism. Um, and in terms of developing a, a, you know, a more, slightly more complex system for drinking, uh, the experience of, of uh, intoxicants is that it's a good idea and a good idea and a good idea until suddenly it's a bad idea. Exactly. Um, and that, and, so, and that is the sort of thing that you can present in a game, just like you could present, you know, gambling at a casino where it's like, oh, you're winning at blackjack. Do you want to double down? 
Oh, yeah, you, you, you get winning. a bonus if you succeed at the roll, and then you get another bonus, and then you get another bonus. But when you fail the roll... Lots of, of minuses. Course, then all of a sudden, you've built up a giant penalty that will then uh, come down on you and replace the uh, the bonuses. Uh, well, uh, once we've lapsed into actual game design... <laughs> I can quit game design anytime I want. Oh, yeah, sure, man. I don't oh, have a problem. Yeah. So it's time for us to uh, sober up and head on into the next segment. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's Puppet Land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games. Featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales from... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing right next to Ken's time machine, which of course is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our not-so-humble interlocutor back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and yes, sometimes even mutilate it. And this time, uh, Patreon backer Sam Harris wants to know, Ken, about your involvement in Gregor McGregor's infamous Poirier scheme. And speaking of stories that challenge the 15-minute myth. Holy crap, yes. The the convoluted tale, uh, even even just the backstory before you get to the Poirier scheme, this may be one of those time machines where it's 13 minutes of uh, detailing what's in your brief and then two minutes of what you did to change the time stream. And uh, I have to say, reading the uh, life of Gregor McGregor uh, makes me really pretty sure that he was... Uh, one of, if not the inspiration for uh, George MacDonald uh, Fraser's uh, Harry Flashman character. And he's a little earlier than that. He's the early part of the 19th century, not the Victorian age. But boy, otherwise does he fit the bill. So there aren't many periods in history where the distinction between being a military commander and being a criminal are vast. But no one connected those two things, I think it's safe to say, more so than Gregor McGregor. So as you investigated him before you went back into time uh, to uh, meet him and probably drink with him, what did you learn about Gregor McGregor? All right. Gregor McGregor is a soldier, uh, much like, as you say, Flashman. He's from Scotland with a name like Gregor McGregor. Perhaps that was obvious, but let's just <laughs> underline taken it. As red. He served with distinction in the Peninsular War. Uh, he was an officer in the British Army, and much like many officers in the British Army, he took um, uh, the opportunity to go to South America during their re rebellions from Spain to serve in their armies, because their armies were short of competent combat officers. And when you 
went to South America, you would get a promotion. So, for example, he gets to be a general in Venezuela. Uh, the highest rank he legitimately achieved in Spain was major, although at some point he began calling himself colonel, which begins to get you towards the kind of guy he's going to turn out to be. But he... Um, uh, he, uh, he, he goes to Venezuela, takes up arms, uh, against the hated Spanish and, uh, succeeds. And whether that is because Venezuela's time was right or because he was serving under, uh, Bolivar or because the Spanish were just not very good at their jobs or maybe because he, you know, rolled the dice and got lucky a couple of times. But he did in fact, um, uh, serve with distinction in Venezuela. He also captured uh, an island in Florida and attempted to declare the Republic of the Floridas in 1817. Right. It, it was a pirate infested island, the yeah. best kind of island. The best kind of island. And so right there, the Republic of the Floridas, there's your alternate history. I mean, you can, you can combine crazy steampunk, uh, with uh, exciting Miami crime novels. And you're ready to go. I recommend this as a setting for other people. Um, and, and, then, and remember, he's Flashman. So when he, part of the way he tried to retroactively fund that was by selling people into slavery. So <laughs> uh, keep in mind what kind of dude this is. Right. Well, much like regular Florida, it's, it's, it's origin does not, does not respond well to close examination. He was one of the original Florida men. And, and then um, uh, his full Flashmanosity comes out. He's serving in uh, New Granada, which is eventually becomes Columbia. And rather than heroically do a fighting retreat, he does the other kind of retreat where you run away and leave your men to be slaughtered. Uh, so that eventually sours even South America on him and he goes back to, uh, Britain. And when in Britain, he announces that he has been declared the cacique of Poyais by the king of the Mosquito Coast. The Mosquito Coast is the bit of Nicaragua that's on the Caribbean. The British chopped down lumber on the Mosquito Coast and didn't want to pay the Spanish for it. Didn't want to pay anybody for it, really. Uh, and so, because that cuts into your bottom line. And Paying so, people is not what colonialism is. Not what the British about. are about, by golly. And so, the, um, uh, they picked a local, uh, leader, a local tribesman and said, you're the king of the Mosquito Coast and we recognize you as monarch. And th- your first act of monarch is to let us chop down all the lumber. And your second act is to go away. You bother us. And so <laughs> Gregor McGregor said, hmm, dodgy claims of royalty, eh? And uh, made himself the cacique of Poyais. He goes around Scotland with very exciting, fully fledged documents il- illustrating his, his uh, commission and sells uh, land in uh, Honduras and uh, Nicaragua on the Mosquito Coast to the locals, uh, some of them rich who could afford it, many of them not rich who could not afford it. And certainly the colonists who are like, yes, I would rather live in Mosquito, something literally called the Mosquito Coast than Scotland. One suspects they were not the rich guys. Well, maybe that's why he was calling it Poyais. Yes. It, yes. But it says right in, right in his guidebook on the front page, sketch of the Mosquito Shore, including the territory of Poyais. So it's right up there. You can't well, get him for false he's representation. He's a con artist, and con artists put in little screening things mm-hmm. because they are aiming at people whose uh, greed is greater than their caution. Exactly. People who are not capable of reading something that says Mosquito Shore and saying, that doesn't sound like my shore. That it's sounds like, like calling s- something Trump University. It's <laughs> supposed to be a, a right. weeding out mechanism. <laughs> the bozo filter. Well, in this case, the bozo filter is yellow fever. And so uh, a bunch of people, like five ships worth of people, sail out 
to Honduras and land and there's no mosquito, there's no poyes. There's, there's local Indians called the poyers or poyes. And they are like, we've never heard of any of you people and go away. And they go looking for the town that's supposed to be there. And they're sort of a pile of rubble. And the, the settlers are, well, we must have read the map wrong. <laughs> right. Cause they're not being told that they're going to uncharted, uh, even unoccupied wilderness. And of course, no wilderness is ever actually unoccupied. They're be- to be- being told that there's already a colony there. A flourishing that's- colony. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> he runs the Poyes scheme in uh, Scotland and then leaves England right before the first batch of surviving Poyes colonists return and runs the right. scheme. And that's half of the people who set out. So this is, a you know, yeah, people died. And more than half died. I think fewer wound up back in Britain. Right. Anyway, he, he was a con artist who committed mass murder through his through the act of con artistry. He returns to uh, France and attempts to run the Poyes scheme in France. In France, they're not putting up with this foolishness, first of all, because the Mosquito Coast isn't theirs. Second of all, because they perhaps have read the newspapers. And so they grab them and toss them in prison. And McGregor's like, I don't know why you would toss a hero of the liberation movement of South America in prison. That doesn't sound like the Republican France that I know and love. And France is like, we're run by a king. Did you read anything? Well, it was hard to keep up with uh, changing government in France. Right. So they're brought to trial, and uh, the uh, guy who was with them, uh, who was uh, the, the guy who sort of wrote the, um, uh, kept the records, kept the books of the scheme, had snuck off to the Netherlands before any of this. He was no fool. And uh, he's like, I'm rich. I'll go to the Netherlands. No one has ever arrested a rich man in the Netherlands. And so he goes off and does that. So the French can't prosecute McGregor because all the documents of it being a fraud are off in the Netherlands. So they don't really have any proof of him being a con man. And eventually the whole situation collapses in a mistrial. The guy who's in the Netherlands is convicted in absentia. That'll learn him. And then McGregor's found not guilty and uh, he then is <laughs> found not guilty on the condition that he leaves France again. And so he goes back to London and uh, attempts a sort of smaller scale stock hoax. But in this particular case, the newspapers are on it and saying, hey, remember that guy who's got all those people killed in Honduras? He's back with new stock certificates. So eventually he moves back to Venezuela, which is the only country that he's ever actually helped out. And they're uh, very fond of him, but they don't, I think, trust him to run their finances. And he eventually but he gets a, a state funeral. He, he does dies, get a state funeral and um, uh, becomes uh, and he goes back and he collects his old general's pension, which is, I guess, not bad if you're living in Venezuela in the first place and um, uh, winds up uh, buried with honors in Venezuela, which is about as happy an ending as you can possibly have. If you are, as you mentioned, a slave trading coward who is also a mass murdering con artist. So I guess we're supposed to have some sort of thing where you go, go back in time. Yeah. <laughs> now, this is a, a difficult challenge because. Uh, your enemy here, I would presume, would be human gullibility, right? There's all sorts of signposts that people should not be uh, suckered into the Poirier scheme, yet they still are. Uh, how do you uh, 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 make this somewhat less horrible when you go back into time? Well, you'll note that of the five attempts at the Poirier scheme, only one of them worked. I think less horrible is baked into the cake. Uh, but our Patreon backer has only asked me what my involvement was in Gregor McGregor's Poyer scheme. Not so you're what not going to have to fix anything no. just to become involved. Right. And I will answer that in the form of a quotation. It's a 355-page guidebook 
complete with locations and uh, descriptions of the territory. Uh, printed at great expense. There is an honor system, landed titles, distinct uniforms, commercial and banking mechanisms, a tricameral parliament, convoluted constitutional arrangements, a coat of arms supported by poyers and unicorns, and a flag. All of this part of the Poyer's documents. What does that sound like to you, Robin? It sounds like you got paid to write a source book and you got paid by the word. Exactly. And uh, I will now uh, go back to another quote from the novel Guy Mannering by the lovely and talented Sir Walter Scott. And it goes a little something like this. The frolicsome company had begun to practice the ancient and now forgotten pastime of high jinks. The game was played in several different ways. Most frequently, the dice were thrown by the company, and those upon whom the lot fell were obliged to assume and maintain for a time a certain fictitious character. If they departed from the characters assigned, they incurred forfeits, which were compounded for by swallowing an additional bumper. It is a drinking role-playing game described by Sir Walter Scott. What I put to you is that I have found out what happened to Walter Scott's Campaign notes, which he may or may not have paid me to write for him. <laughs> My contribution to this story is to go back and remove all signs of role-playing games from early 1820s Scotland, when Sir Walter Scott and I, and possibly Mary Shelley, and possibly other uh, ornaments of Edinburgh society, uh, may or may not have played, Monk, Monk Lewis, may or may not have played role-playing games to while away a long and dreary winter in historical Scotland. Now, I've heard of going to great lengths to extend a deadline, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is certainly involvement, uh, and I have to thank you, for, I suppose, for eliminating role-playing from the time stream before, uh, you know, so it could still be a new medium when I got to it. I've certainly, it certainly rewarded me. Exactly, right. I mean, you have said so many times how much you enjoy being present at the birth of a new medium, and despite the fact that I have perhaps accidentally introduced role-playing a number of times, I've always been made sure to pick up all my dice and most of my stuff, but apparently Sir Walter Scott kept his copies of the Poyer's role-playing game, and, well, now we know what happened to it. Uh, well, uh, until the next time we find a, a D20 and a Sumerian tablet, I guess it's time for us to uh, exit this podcast and anticipate that there will be another one next week dropping at the same time in your same electronic listening devices. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Be a cat that really is gone alongside such patrons as... Louis Sylvester. Lee Carnell. Gwendolyn Schmidt. Raphael Papst. And Brian Thomas. Snag your Ken and Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. New designs include Metaphor Drift, Metaphor Drift. And you need canapes to have a secret society. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>